I wanted the diversity of the Asian American cast to be reflected. They, they, the characters of the book, they're all different. And I wanted that diversity reflected on the screen because that's who we are as a community. We're really different, like just like everyone else. Hello from Taipei. Welcome to the New Voices podcast. I'm your host, Solarina Ho, New Voices board member and journalist. Today, our guest is Abigail Ping Wen. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling Hawaii novel, Love Boat Taipei, as well as its follow-up novel, Love Boat Reunion and the upcoming Love Boat Forever. The adaptation of her first book, Love in Taipei, starring Ashley Liao and Ross Butler, was released by Paramount Plus on August 10th. Surprise! You are going to Taipei. Like Taiwan? <laughs> we want to give you something special. It's going to be the perfect summer. Hi! Hi. I'm Sophie Ha. Like, haha. I'm Emma. Do you go to college? Um, Are you excited for the summer? I've seen any guys you like. <sighs> Do you not like to talk? Um, I don't really know if excited is the right word. You are here to learn and experience your culture. So joining us from LA, she's here to talk about Love Boat, her novel, and the film. Hi, Abigail, and welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So there's actually been more written about the love boat in recent years. But for those who don't know, the first thing to clarify is obviously there is no actual boat anywhere. Can you tell listeners what it is exactly? So it's a program that's been around since the 1960s. It was a cultural exchange program started by the Taiwanese government to bring overseas uh, youth back home to learn language and culture. And parents would send their kids there to find a spouse. And there was actually a lot of couples that came out of the program. So that's how it got its nickname, Love Boat. It's nicknamed after the 1970s program, you know, that the TV show On the Boat. But yes, you're right. There is no actual boat. Just uh, it's a program. Right. And there was also like a, a baby boat for the younger teens. Is that right? Oh, you know about it. So my cousins were on the baby boat at the same time that I was on the regular boat. One, one of my cousins, it was like three of the siblings together. Um, one was older than me by a year and the other two were like a lot younger. So I hung out with them all summer. And that's why they're cousins in the love boat story as well. Okay. And so that's 12 to 18 for the younger one and then 18 to 23 for the older one? Mm-hmm. That's right. I had so many friends that had gone on it. We've had a number of past new voices guests, you know, who've all attended apparently. And so this program obviously is connected and, and reached out to a lot of people. Can you talk more about the impact it's had on you? And I understand your husband went on a different year as well and, and other people that you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, it's only in retrospect that I realized how important it was, you know, at the time it was just this crazy fun summer. And I don't know that we necessarily took it seriously. It helped us grow as leaders. I see like the Love Boat alum, the fact that you've had so many Love Boat alum on your podcast speaks to it. Like there's so many incredible alum that have come out. And that's, I think for two big reasons. One is that we healed in terms of our cultural identity. Like I think a lot of us, me especially like coming from Ohio, I was running away from my cultural heritage. I didn't want to be Asian. I was embarrassed by like the food that I sometimes packed for school and people would stare at it or ask you know, weird questions. I didn't like the way I looked. Guys weren't interested in me. And all that kind of changed after I experienced like, oh, wow, you know, like this is my culture. These are cool Asian Americans who like they rave about Hong Kong pop stars and they love the night market and all these things I just didn't know about and didn't know that I could be excited about. So I feel like Love Boat did exactly what it was supposed to do, which was help us to reconnect to this part of our life that we didn't know existed, this rich, deep history of our ancestors. And so, you know, when I, I met my husband, who was also a Love Boat alum, we didn't go the same summer, but I feel like Love Boat connected us because we were similarly changed in that way. And I think the second big thing that we took away was actually a rebellion, which is a very 
strange thing to say probably, but you know, we live in America, which is a country that was founded on rebellion. It's a value. Like in Silicon Valley, it's the disruptors that want to overturn industries and challenge the status quo. Those are the ones who get things done and they're the ones who make the billions of dollars. And so I actually think those skills that we learned of resisting, the seeking out clubbing, like fighting against authority, you know, there were consequences to the behavior and sometimes people went too far. But I think that was, those are good skills, good and important skills of resisting the system that I think I see the Love Boat alum today. Many of them are in leadership roles. And I think that's because that's, those skills are needed to become a leader. Right. And what year did you go? If, if you don't mind me asking. No, no, no. I went in 1996. So it was the summer after my freshman year at Harvard. I was curious because I know it seems like the uh, the Canadians that I knew that went kind of, it was there the summer before their final year, the summer after their final year, whereas I think it seemed like a lot of Americans went much earlier. So I think even that, those few years of age gap brought a, a slightly different experience as well, I can imagine. Very much so. Yeah. I did hang out with a bunch of Canadians. I remember they were a little dark. Yeah, yeah. And I think I remember um, my friends were saying, you know, a lot of Americans were a bit younger, so they were also hanging out with like, you know, other people that they knew. But um, yeah, I'm also curious, you know, the, the program had a bit of a political bend, but it also, you know, had changed and evolved quite a bit since it originated in the 1960s and shrank a lot as well. Is that something that you can talk about a little bit, just how that has evolved and, and where it stands today? Yeah. So I, at the, at the time I went on the program, there was, it was actually at the height of attendance and there were a thousand kids. There were so many kids, they had to split us across two campuses. So 500 of us were at Chenton campus in Taipei and 500 of us were in Ocean. And they, they, we, split, we switched actually halfway through the summer. Every summer did this slightly differently. My husband, his summer, they split and they didn't switch. And so the people who ended up in Ocean felt like they got shafted. So that's in my year. They, they, they had us reverse partway through the summer. Um, but this program did get smaller over the years, and then it became focused on a tour around the island, which is just three weeks. And um, it actually sunset at the end of last year. But there are so many other programs like it now, like in different countries, too, which I think is really fascinating. My friends had gone, I think, in 98, as kind of like as well, around the, the peak years, and they did the swap with the two campuses. It kind of incredible how much has changed from, you know, a thousand kids down to, I think, I read somewhere it was down to like about 100 near the program's end. Is that right? It could be. Yeah. I don't know the exact numbers, but I know it was a lot smaller. My understanding is some of it, when it started changing in the early 2000s, was political changes and, and fundings that got cut. That's right. Yeah. Right. So it's uh, it's interesting how that's also really evolved and how many thousands of diaspora kids attended, but now it's an opportunity that... Uh, that's no longer available. Yeah, but you know, I, there's so many opportunities now to get that cultural experience. Like I said, there are other programs that are very similar. People have so much more access to information through, through the internet, through YouTube, and then now through this film. Um, but I am a big fan of everyone going and getting international experience because it just shows you that we're all the same. And so can you talk about the inspiration for wanting to put this experience into, you know, a novel? Well, I'd gone on the program, you know, 20 years ago, and it had always been such a fascinating thing. Like you'd go to, I'd go to parties and you'd find out, oh, you're a Love Boat alum too. Do you remember, you know, that story? Or did you hear that year? What happened? Like there were just crazy stories from year to year, you know, that a lot of them actually made their way into my novels, um, including 
80 guys who broke into an antique shop and got sent home. So I think it was just so much, there was so much fodder there for fun, crazy stories. And also it was a different side of Asian Americans. They were, you know, in the States, we were fighting stereotypes of the model minority and quiet and not engaging. And like the depictions of us in the media were so limited to just a few stereotypes, like Kung Fu thing. And, um, you know, there's the Susie Wongs, right? So I, when I was really struck by the Lovewood experience is that it showcased a different side of us that people didn't see, but it was really fun. And it was kind of an opportunity to you know, engage audiences with this this really fun like world, and also like a Trojan horse in some ways to share about like, hey, this is this is what the Asian experience, Asian American experience is like. You know, here's the fun parts and the hard parts. Like the book, the first book actually, they my characters experience racism in Taipei, like towards the middle three quarters way into the book, and that's just part of our experience. And I love being able to show all the different facets and the complexity of our lives. I guess, and how about the the love boat aspect of the experience? Was that, how much of that was kind of the year, the summer that you went and how much of that is just all the stories that you had heard over the years? <laughs> yeah, so I, I say the external journey, like all the, the fun things are, it's all, it's fictionalized. Um, it's based on you know, stories I've heard of the years. I things I observed when I was on Love Boat myself. I did seek out clubbing, but I just went out the front door with my friends with the counselors chasing after us um, half-heartedly. And my husband is the one who went over the blue pipe. I did not know this blue pipe existed until we started. Actually, I think until I started talking about this book with him and he's like, oh, the blue pipe. Like, they got to go over the blue pipe. Like, what blue pipe? So there is actually a blue pipe for those who've read the book, for those who haven't read the book, actually, that goes from campus across the Keelong River to the other side. And it's a water pipe. So... Apparently, he and his friends like crawled over this pipe to escape campus, um, and other people went up the wall. So that I feel like escaping campus is quintessential love boat, very cloak and dagger, you know, lurking in the shadows type of thing. So that I did, you know, and I did take glamour shots, but not naked ones. But I saw other people's naked ones, and the snake blood sake I got. That was a, a husband story. There's a story of the girls washing the sheets in the bathroom. And I had heard that story from another love boat, not not the Taiwan love boat, but the, a different love boat. And uh, gosh, yeah, it, it was it was fun. I actually was careful not to interview anyone until after I wrote the book because I wanted to just kind of write it from my own experience. And then after I wrote it, I ended up interviewing a bunch of people and I collected a whole bunch more stories that I couldn't use. But oh, the demerit system was something I got from my interviews. So I added that back in. Like I added that in after like I'd written a couple drafts. And I was curious because I know the whole like ever being unable to communicate very well in Mandarin. Did you speak it? No, sadly not. I, I, I do actually regret it. I, my kids speak Mandarin better than I do because I made sure that they were in immersion programs, which is possible in California. My mom speaks six languages, having grown up in the Philippines, and she speaks like a Hokkien dialect. And she's, she spoke English and Spanish, as well as like the local dialects. And then she also did Mandarin in school. So she actually felt like really strongly that I only learned one language well. She felt like she had no language. I mean, when I think about it, like six languages is like, that's really quite an accomplishment. And then my dad spoke Mandarin and an Indonesian dialect in English. So in my home, we, we only spoke English. So I did wish that I could speak Mandarin better, but even though, you know, I was basically a Chinese school dropout. I think Ever is a little bit like that too. So we've really seen a shift in Asian representation when it comes to pop culture. And as you talked about, you know, the model minority definitely pushed back on some of these traditional stereotypes in East Asian communities. You know, we're not a monolith and, and all of that stuff. But you've had, you know, obviously remarkable 
Bull accomplishments, valedictorian, U.S. presidential scholar, JD from Columbia, all of that. And I wanted to ask you as a writer and a storyteller, you know, sometimes it's a tricky thing to write about your own experiences when that reality is part of some of those stereotypes, I guess. Did you worry about that at all when you're writing the story? And why or why not, I guess, uh, if you can talk a little bit more about that and how you might have tried to balance it? Yeah, I do find it funny that people think that I fit some of those, being the model minority. I guess I did go to Harvard and I did get good grades. I, you know, my theory on why Asian Americans are so successful is that there is there was discrimination at the borders. Like the only people who get into the country, our generation, my parents' generation, were were scholars, were people who came through higher education, like they got student visas, or they were like they were high tech workers who got H one B visas, or and so that every you know everyone else couldn't get in. And so I think that that's why my generation of immigrant kids was so high performing because we came out of those families that really valued education, and that was their path to freedom. So I think there are, there are reasons for those stereotypes, but there's certainly other waves of immigrants that are far less, you know, they, they don't have that profile. There was still, there's different waves like the, the ones, you know, the Chinatown, there's the railroad workers, and then there's other non-Chinese immigrant groups that have their own paths. So I did lean into, you know, forever it is the, the typical like doctor versus something else path. That too is grounded in reality in Taiwan. And you probably, your audience is probably very familiar with this, but under Japanese occupation, being a doctor is one of the best and few strong jobs that the local could take or could get. And so that's why so many went into medicine. There was actually a political, like governmental legal reason for that. So I think when we dig deeper into the stereotypes, we find like there's more to them than we realize. But at the same time, we should... Like, I think my part of my job is to show like how it's not different. And that's why within Lobo Taipei, there is the artist and the slacker. And, you know, there is boy wonder, but there's also people who are just struggling with other with like with learning differences like Xavier. So, yeah, I really I really appreciated how, you know, your characters all had very different paths. And, you know, so you kind of represented even with Ever, even though she had sort of the the more stereotypical upbringing and expectations, like her passion was dance and and that kind of thing. And I and I think it seemed like you were trying to balance and, and show that that wide range of people and interests and everything that that's out there. Absolutely. Um. And Sophie Ha, it, like she just wants to get married at first. Like that's that's her journey, right? She needs to realize that there's a bit more to life than that. The other thing I, I liked was how you tackled the complicated relationships between parents who want to plan out your life and, and kids who want to please their parents and also trying to like figure out their own dreams. And and also with the aunties and uncles in the book, at least, you know, these seem like all characters I that I'd met or knew about at some point in my life. And I wanted to, to ask if these are characters that you kind of knew in real life as well. Yeah, I, I've loved hearing people say that. Oh, they just they feel so seen. They feel rec- they they recognize the characters, and that's that's what I wanted. Um, I think that is actually, you know, what the what the writer does. The writer writes with such specific specificity that people can relate to it. And I think that's what happened with Lobo Taipei. The characters are just so specific. Like Sophie Ha is a computer science major at Dartmouth who is boy crazy and comes from, you know, is born of a parents that. Her father left her, her mother, right? And so there's there, there are reasons that drive her towards wanting to marry a wealthy husband. 
And then Xavier has dyslexia that's undiagnosed and his father wish, just wishes it would go away. His father is like the head of a Taiwanese tech empire and has very high standards for his slacker son. Um, so I think just be- because they're so specific, people are able to connect with them and um, it's been rewarding to hear the response. For me, I think the novelty of having all these books and novels and movies and shows now geared towards kids and teens and young adults who look like us, the novelty of that still hasn't worn off, even though I'm like decades away from that age group. And I can't, in some ways, can't imagine, you know, having access to these these types of media forms at that age, you know. So in that sense, it's it's like retroactively enjoying all of that and, and appreciating and seeing it through my kids' lens, perhaps. And I was curious, what kind of feedback have you gotten from uh, readers and viewers, um, you know, of different age groups, perhaps? Absolutely. So, you know, we are we're speaking on the ninth, the day before the film drops, but I've had a couple screenings now and that's exactly the feedback I got. People said this is our 16 candles, like never the older people, they just never had shows like this that spoke to their coming of age journeys as teenagers. And they're, they're thrilled that their children have access to it and just can see themselves reflected on the screen as main characters and heroes of their lives. My readers, I think the most rewarding has been when I hear people feel really seen, their stories reflected. And I'm, you know, I I know that like there's people who just will not understand what it's like to be erased um, or to be marginalized. And I feel like my those people may not understand the story, but those people don't need to see the story. The ones who do need to see the story are, are the ones that need to know that, that their stories are important. And what about your own kids? You know, do they do they want to go on it, or you know, do they do they see this differently, or do they feel like, well, this is this is so normal for me now versus you know the way? I think the big takeaway from my journey is resilience because they saw how hard I worked, how many years, how many books I had to bury on the way to Lobo Taipei. I buried four, four, four novels. There were five novels on the way to Lobo Taipei. Um, but they, uh, yeah, they have been here with me. They've read, they've been my beta readers. Um, they actually came to set in Taipei. They did the two weeks quarantine and they were able to come to set and, and visit and hang out with us. Um, and so I joked that that was our, that was their love boat experience on parental supervision. No need to go on their own later. <laughs> it is interesting to see their, like their generation kids and their relationship to their ethnicity is different than mine was. But, you know, again, they're going to find their own path and they'll make it their own in their own way. So speaking of the film, can you talk about how the book went from paper to screen? So we always knew, I think, with the book deal that we wanted a film. Um, I had kind of had my appetite wet with my fourth novel, which well, actually was my third novel, and then the fourth went somewhere else. But the the, fourth, the third novel people thought could be made into a movie, but I came close at a major publishing house, and their marketing team said they didn't know how to market it. It was, it was a world before Crazy Rich Asians, and Hamilton you know, opened up the world for diverse stories, having, you know, big audiences or general audiences. So we went to auction with the publishers and HarperCollins paid top dollar, but everyone was talking about movie deals at that point. And when we announced the book deal, which was one of the biggest acquisitions that HarperCollins had done for several years, um, the scouts started calling and I started talking to producers pretty soon after that. So the conversation at the early stages was, is this a TV series or is this a film? Is this a musical, like a full-blown Broadway production, or is it more like we just lean slightly into the dance elements? And really could have gotten gone in so many different directions. I had I loved just thinking about the possibilities and 
you know, in my mind, like her possibilities aren't foreclosed. There's stories that get iterated in different ways over time. Then from there, it was a matter of like, you, know, you pick a producer, you find a screenwriter, you bring on a director, and then you cast. And for me, casting, it was important to open the doors to the whole world because I knew we were going to have to find young new stars and that there may not be like the level of experience that people might want, but that's how you start. Like you need to give people experience so they can, they can go on to do other things. So then we actually filmed in Taipei at the height of COVID and we were all on set testing, COVID testing three times a week. It was a closed set, so people were not allowed in. And I think that kind of contributed to this magical experience of, it was like all of us together, like for 35 days straight of filming and we would go clubbing together and visit the night markets together. And it was really amazing. And I think, you know, I was told very early on that the cast had all experienced being marginalized in one form or the other, you know, they were the ones that we ended up casting as our leads. They're all very talented and remarkable and they are pioneers in their fields. And so they all went out of their way to make sure everyone felt included. And we'd go clubbing with Ashley's personal assistant. And I just loved it. There was not a hierarchy. And I feel like this is how it should be. And I guess you talked about the importance of, of how you wanted the cast to be. Did you have a say in the exact, you know, casting or or even changes that were made to the story? Because at least based on, you know, the trailers, it seems like there are a number of changes from in the adaptation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So when you sign over your rights as an author, you, you do lose creative control. And it was important for my team and for me that I'd be really involved because I wanted to make sure to preserve the authenticity of the representation of, of Asian Americans, of Asian stories. And so I, in some ways, my role was that was my primary goal you bring on all these creative people that have all these ideas of their own. And so, you know, you kind of have to let them run with it a bit. And so there were there were changes made, I think, partly just because of the exercise of taking a 400-page novel and turning it into a 90-page script. We had to condense a lot of things. We had to lose storylines. So the Auntie Shu character is actually the um, dance instructor that ever meets in the book who kind of is a role model. Like, oh, here's an Asian woman who loves to dance. And she had a career in dance. And Auntie Shu is like that character. She's an artist herself, a role model. But we brought her, she ended up being brought, she brings the storyline of the family closer to home because she's able to keep ever connected to her parents. And so that that helps to kind of condense that primary storyline of Ever's journey and her relationship with like learning how to pursue her passions while still honoring her family. But uh, yeah, I, I would say like a lot of my influence was more um, like soft, influence like I'm there I can I can can weigh in I spoke you know at length with the screenwriter about the adaptation and the characters and their arcs and then of course on set the actors all spoke to me about their character roles and so you know we would have this conversation about like where do you see your character how does this fit into your arc but uh yeah I I I think of this movie as like a really delicious very very small piece actually of the whole Love Boat trilogy the movie itself doesn't even get to the end of book one it's I think of it as like the romance arc is ending at the midpoint of book one. And so there's just so much more story to go. And I'm glad that, you know, I can point readers back to the rest of the books um, to see where the character journeys go from here. And was there an element from the book that you really wanted to make sure made it to the screen adaptation in terms of just message or or a particular character or storyline? I know you, you, you kind of talked about that, but anything that you really fought hard for? I wanted the diversity of the Asian American cast 
to be reflective. They, they, the characters of the book, they're all different. And I wanted that diversity reflected on the screen because that's who we are as a community. We're really different, like just like everyone else. And then I was, my hope is for my diverse cast to go on and be discovered into other non-ethnic specific roles around Hollywood, like playing all those diverse roles because that's, again, that's who we are in society. And I was curious, just because I'm, I'm here in the summer and I'm, I'm dying from the heat, what month were you guys filming again? Uh, yes, this is one of those Easter eggs. I need to point it out more. Um, we filmed November, December, January. And so we couldn't find any spring, summer clothes. There was nothing to be had. And we were filming at the height of COVID. So that is why you see like sweatshirts, <laughs> sweaters. Because that's all we have. Yeah, the, those things, those details definitely jumped out at me as I, you know, I'm drenched in sweat. I was like, wow, those, yep. you know, blazers, <laughs> sweatshirts. Great. And so I wanted to shift gears a little bit before we wind down, you know, you, you had a career in Silicon Valley and, and you also have another book coming out. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what's next for you and, and if you hope to keep balancing both parts of your very, very different careers? So I actually did leave my corporate job two years ago to focus full time on the creative work. So I am writing, I'm writing all, but I have a lot more, many more books coming. So as you mentioned, the third novel, La Boat Forever, comes out on November 7th this year. I have three more unannounced novels on the way. One is finished, one is like halfway finished, and the other one is now like I'm just beginning. I'm so excited to finally pick it up. It's been it's been in me for many years as well. And I feel like that one is my magnum opus. Um uh, at the same time I'm also doing a lot of more producing work. So I've got a couple I've got a number of like film and TV projects in the works. And I think uh, yeah, I, I'm excited to just dive into all these projects I have like a really wonderful team around me so many talented people to work with and um, I feel like you know we're going to be building from here right. on and so do you feel like you've left the corporate world behind then or do you think you might want to dip back in at some point down the road I think I'm creating my own corporate world right I find that all those skills that I developed over the years finance technology and the creative storytelling those are all valuable skills that I'm now using as a filmmaker. And that is really what filmmaking is. So I didn't know that this would be my path, but I'm grateful that I had all that experience and training because now I'm able to put it all to use. Well, thank you so much for your time. Before we wrap up, we normally kind of end with recommendations or self-care tips from our guests. And I was wondering if you had any that you would like to share with our listeners. Yeah. So I think exercise is really important. I worked for with Rogers on the DC circuit and she exercised every single day. I think she was 70 years old at the time, but it's really important. Like, even if you are a big brain, like you got to take care of your body because that's what housing, your, housing your brain and all that creative energy. I love to sit in like a hot tub or a warm bath. That's like super relaxing for me. I think after our call, I'll probably do both. Um, go swim in the pool at this hotel and then I'm going to sit in the tub. I journal a lot that I find that that's like my way of like my outlet for things I'm thinking and feeling. And then I also am a big believer in therapy. There have been periods in my life where I had like three therapists or like a coach, like all at the same time because I was going through crises moments. I think having someone who can reflect back to you how you're feeling and give you the words and equip you to just understand like why you're feeling the way you're feeling in a really, you know, a confidential way. It sometimes takes time to find that right, that right therapist. But when you do find people that understand you for that particular season of time, like it can be so valuable. So I'm, you know, big fan of people finding help, you know, whatever, whatever stage you're, of life you're in and whatever you're going through. And 
and not to, I guess, add to stereotypes, but I, at least uh, in my experience, um, culturally, sometimes asking for help for these kind of more mental, emotional needs can be challenging. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. That's probably why I wanted to write. I have, you know, I have characters who are depressed and struggle with depression, like Jenna and and the learning differences that I think our community hasn't talked about as much. Or, you know, I, I know friends actually aren't Asian American, but I think it's they're similar in our community. They, they don't want to admit their child is autistic, right? They just, they like similar to Xavier's father, they just hope it goes away eventually, or they're worried about stigma. And I think, you know, we shouldn't worry about that. I'm like, I'm a big fan of just of neurodiversity too. Like it's just different ways our brains are wired and they're we're beautiful as well. So yeah, it, it seems like things are, 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 are definitely changing. Um, and, but the stigmas, it's, it's always something a little bit hard to let go of perhaps, or, or, you know, so it's, it's really great to kind of see that, that shift and, and getting that message out. Um, and any recommendations, anything you've read or watched lately that you really think everybody should, should give a shot to? Yeah, well, I am a huge fan of the Bridgerton series. So I just, I watched Queen Charlotte. Gosh, there's so many wonderful stories out there. I've watched a lot of the Asian, oh, I love the Barbie movie. I did not love Barbie. I did have Barbies growing up. I did not love it. I didn't relate to it. I definitely think it was problematic that Barbie was so skinny and no one had those proportions, but she gave everyone a complex. Um, but I thought the Barbie movie really redeemed all of it. And I think it was very clever, um, but it's like a really wonderful feminist story. And beautifully shot. And Simu Liu is fantastic. And he's he's a really strong number two. Yeah. And then if books, there's so many wonderful books out. Um, you know, my, my friend Sabata here just published um, All My Rage, which won the National Book Award for Young People and Prince and a whole bunch of other awards. And it's a really wonderful book. So I highly recommend it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time for and, and joining us out of your busy emotional schedule. And good luck with everything. Thank you. It was really wonderful chatting. And thank you for all your thoughtful questions. You've been listening to the New Voices podcast with me, Solarina Ho. Our production team is Asaga Ringmar and Kyle Leung. Our editor is Megan Cattell. Intro and outro music is by April Zhu. Follow us on Twitter at New Voices and on Instagram at New Voices underscore network. Support our activities via Patreon. Patrons are invited to play an active role in our community. Get bonus episodes delivered right to your inbox each month by subscribing at www.patreon.com slash new voices. Until next time. Bye.